Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our broadcast. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Lamb Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat broadcast for B'nai Shalom, our internet congregation. Thank you for inviting us into your home and for us to be a part of your Sabbath. Uh, let me begin with a couple of quick announcements before we get on to our service. Um, I want to remind everybody that we're hosting a or going to hold a Hanukkah conference December 15th through the 17th here in the Norman area. If you'd like to be a part of that conference, we have a number of speakers and worship teams coming in. We're going to have some fun. Uh, well, well, we're going to have a party. It's a Hanukkah party. And uh, have a good time of fellowship with the people. Uh, look into that if you can be a part of that. And uh, we have a registration is open and available online for you to go to Lion Lamb and ask for that. Um, I just also want to remind everyone that in the middle of November, we're going to restart our Q&A broadcast. We've gotten through the fall holidays. And this is an opportunity for you to send questions in, biblical questions that you want to ask uh, about our messianic faith, uh, understanding of what's in the scripture. You send those to qa at lionlamb.net. Send your questions well in advance so we can make it a part of the program and the broadcast. And again, you can plan on seeing that broadcast on 15 November at 7.30 p.m. And again, we'll be starting that up with a monthly broadcast for Q&A. Uh, just one last thing I would like to um, share with you and speak with you about, and that is we know there are thousands of computers that log in and see this broadcast. However, there are not thousands of people who send us a gift or a thank you note or anything to acknowledge uh, in a reciprocal fashion to what we're doing here. Let me just explain to you this is the simple facts. Um, we're here to share spiritual blessings with you. In response, you're supposed to share material blessings back with us so that we can sustain and keep this going. Uh, right now, despite this broadcast going out to th th literally thousands and thousands of people, there's not enough coming in to sustain the broadcast. So we're making an investment from other funds and other ministries to make this possible. So I'm speaking to you who's watching this broadcast, who enjoys the broadcast, wants to be a part of it. If you've never contributed toward this, well, then please do. Uh, respond to us and, and so that we can continue to do it. I can tell you for a plain fact that if we had every one of you just send a little something, just a little something in for the broadcast, we would have more than adequate resources not only to keep this broadcast going, but to do even additional things I think would be of benefit to you. So please, uh, please consider that uh, and uh, give, uh, uh, ask the Lord about what your role and your part would be in helping to keep this broadcast going. Thank you very much. All right, without any further ado, Shabbat Shalom, and let's get ready for Kiddush. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Elohim, my cow alone. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. Now, Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Borei Pri HaKahafin Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem in haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us wonderful wives of Proverbs. And Lord, I pray, thank you for the wonderful wife that you've given me. I pray that you would bless her as she rises while it's yet night to see about the ways of our household. And I pray that you would bless her and encourage her and strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful blessing she is. I pray that you bless her with your very best blessing and that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all things. And that I confess that I love my wife. So we thank you, Lord, for our wives. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. Our daughters. Huh? Oh, uh, oh, 
bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and grant you peace. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. May the Lord with you ever be. May he bring you home unto the land prepared for thee. May God bless you and grant you long life. who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. May His Spirit fill you with grace. May our family grow in happiness. So hear our Sabbath prayer. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Micha mocha baelim adonai Micha mocha nedahar bachodesh Nohorat echilot who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elohinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Israel et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adortam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Israel odhit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'oretz avayom ha'shabi'i shavat v'inafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavka uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavka, hayom alevavcha. Vashinantam lavanecha, v'tepardabam peshivtecha, v'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derechu shakbika, uv'kumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, v'heyu la totvot b'inenecha, uketavtam la mazuzo petecha, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, the chapter 12, where our portion Lech Lecha will begin for this week. And as you are opening the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher barakabanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. As I said before, a portion is entitled Lech Lecha, which comes from Genesis chapter 12, where it says this. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Our story here uh, in the Torah now begins talking about a man named Abram. This is a man that many of us are familiar with. His name in this portion will be changed to something we're more familiar with, and that is Abraham. Our story now with the third Torah portion, we started with Adam and the creation. We now went through the entire narrative of Noah and his life. And we now, the story will shift and begin talking about this man named Abraham and all of his descendants, his immediate descendants after him. And this is really where it begins, the Torah begins the story of the descendants of these men, the patriarchs and the creation of our faith. The creation of those men who followed God, who God makes covenant with, and that in through them that we have the entire creation of Israel, all the families of the earth of that God will be blessed through the descendants of Abraham, through Israel, through the teachings of, of Israel, that the covenant of God will be given to Israel through Moses. And we have the kings, and then we have the Messiah himself will come from this lineage. And so here, is, at the very beginning here, we now talk about this man named Abraham. Whether you be Christian or whether you're Jewish, everyone knows some of the stories of Abraham. They all look to Abraham, even within Christian church. We sing the song to our children, Father Abraham, knowing that the foundation of our faith begins in the life of this man. That he is the father of our faith, the fa of Judeo-Christian values, the father of believing in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, it's, that we call the name of God, identifying that he was the God of Abraham. 
And so here begins this story. Now, he was mentioned at the end of the last portion here. And the story begins with Abram being called by God to enter into the land of Canaan. He came from another land. It says in the, at the end of chapter 12, it talks about how he was in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans and that he and his family uh, traveled from there and went to a place called Haran, which we believe is somewhere in the area of uh, Syria, Damascus area, and that that's where they were. And it says at the very end of chapter 11 that his father died. His, Abraham's father was a man by the name of Terah. And he passed away, and then suddenly, God now calls Abram to then go into the land. God calls him. God chooses this man in the same way that he found grace in the eyes, or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We now have Abram being the man that God is, has chosen and has called to be the man who listens that he will make covenant with. Now, one of the things that's interesting is this, is where Abram came from. It's believed, and through rabbinical writings and, and other texts, it's believed that Terah was an idol maker. He was, a, he, he was a man of renown, but very much intermixed with believing in every manner of thing, believing in other gods and all these things. But then what we have is we now have the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one true God, is calling Abram out of this place, out of that family, to then be the one that he makes covenant with. We can take so much application in our lives applying our lives to the patterns of what Abram or Abraham experienced. Because as the father of our faith, he is the greatest example to understand what it means to follow God when God calls us. God desires to make covenant with us. And in our Torah portion here, we'll see many examples of God affirming the covenant with Abram, making several different aspects of establishing a covenant. Such as making a sacrifice, making an oath, changing one's name. All of these are aspects, especially in the ancient, uh, in the ancient world, of establishing a covenant between one person and another. We, the same way that when the covenant of marriage is formed between a man and a woman, the woman often changes her name to the name of the man. That that is an aspect of covenant. And so through all of the stories of, of Abram and Abraham, we have God forming a covenant with man, and we too can identify ourselves with the establishment of that covenant. And he is an amazing example to follow. First of all, these, this first blessing that is poured out upon Abram that the Lord says, it's like, I'll make you a great nation, I will bless you, amen and amen. When God calls us, how much, how desiring are you to hear God saying, I will bless you, I have called you out of this place, if you obey my voice, I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you. I will not only bless you, but I'll bless your friends. Those that are with you, those that encourage you and strengthen you, they'll all be blessed. But then I will also curse those who curse you. And so then your enemies will fall. Your enemies will suffer any fate that they have against you. They will fall before you. What an amazing blessing that is. And then even through this man, Abram, and through his family, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want to talk about that phrase a little bit here, um, because when you look into the Hebrew, very interesting things start to come out in Genesis 12 at verse 3, where it says literally in the Hebrew, if you were to look at a literal translation, it would read this. 
It will be blessed in you all the families of the earth. That's the way it reads in the Hebrew. And that word in the Hebrew where it says blessed in the Hebrew is a phrase called nevrahu, which in the root of that Hebrew word, nevrahu, is barach, which is blessed. So then when we read that, it says, yes, blessed will be in you all the families of the earth. But the rabbis have studied that word, and it's very interesting that that nevrahu is actually very similar, and it's related to another phrase called mavrich, which means grafted or intermingled. So if you were then to look at that interpretation and that, that you read that in, it's not about necessarily all the families of the earth will be blessed, that they'll be uh, successful and filled with wealth. And, and, and uh, in fact, if you ask that and say, all right, if all, everybody in the world, if there's a great number of descendants of Abraham, is everybody blessed who is a descendant of Abraham? Eh, not necessarily. You might not look at it that way. However, if you look at it and you might interpret it a little bit differently, that grafted in to Abraham, into the family of God, through Abraham, will all the families of the earth be. That it's we all are desiring to be a part of the people of God. Abraham and his descendants are the people, the chosen people. And anyone who is a believer of God wants to be in that family, wants to sit at that table, wants to be a part of that. And so if you look at it that way, that grafted into Abraham will all the families of the earth. That's the, the blessing that we're looking for for us to identify with the family of Abraham and to be a part of him, his family, so that we receive those blessings. Because God already said, I will bless you. I will bless those that bless you. He's blessing the family. But then this last phrase, blessed will you if you're grafted in to the family of Abraham. Also something else interesting in that phrase where it says, all the families of the earth in the Hebrew, that Hebrew word there for earth is not haaretz like it is in the very first verse of all scripture where it said God created the heavens and the earth, hashamayim va'et ha'aretz. In the Hebrew, in Genesis 12, verse 3, it is ha'adama. So a more literal translation should be all the families of the ground. However, that word should kind of pique your interest. A couple of weeks ago in Be- teaching of Bereshit, I talked about how Adam came from Adama, from the ground. And so then looking at that, it's interesting that that's the word used, that it's like all the families of Adam is to be joined back in through the lineage of Abraham. That uh, Adama is a hay, and then it has Adam, and then it has another hay. It's almost like a, it's almost like a bookend. If you're looking in the Hebrew, those two hays that bookend the name of Adam should kind of be like a neon sign that we're talking about. We're going back to Adam, the covenant made with Adam. I mentioned before as we go through the Torah cycle this year, I'd like to point out any time that we're looking at man returning back to where we came from, back to the original creation. Because I told you that Adam, through his sin, that the ground, Adama, was cursed because of him, and that the whole desiring, uh, God's greatest desire with all of his heart and with all of his soul, as it says in Jeremiah 32, is to bring the people back to the land, to restore that breach, to bring us all back to the original part of creation. And that's why the story of Abram here, it's so critical. He's going to the land of Canaan. He's going back to the land. 
Adam was cast out of, out of the garden, and the whole, all of these stories is all about a story of restoration to bring his people, the descendants of Adam, of Noah, of Abraham, back to the land where we were cast out of. And now, but it's a slow process. It's not, we can't just all go out back at once and suddenly everything is restored and the whole sin of Adam has now been fulfilled. No, it's a long process because Abram is going to go back into the land of Canaan and then he's going to be taught something very specific here. Let me go ahead and continue reading here at chapter 12, starting at verse 4. Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed and to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land, and to the place of Shechem as far as the oak trees of Moreh, and the Canaanites were there in the land. Okay, one of the things that's very specific, and you'll see this multiple times throughout Scripture, and you'll see this also as something that's constantly reminded of all the children and the descendants of Abraham, the children of Israel later on, describing how they were strangers in the land. Abram is going back into the land. This is the promised land. This is the place where God is calling him to be. However, he's a stranger in that land. And in the same way that even when the children of Israel go through the great and terrible wilderness, when they cross over the river and go into the promised land, they too will be strangers in the land. And that if we take that even and apply that further into modern history, we have us, the people of God, often are scattered into the nations and we are found to be strangers in the land. This is a pattern in which what it is to be a part of this family, to be a believer in God. You find yourself as a stranger amongst your brethren sometimes. You can probably look back to a story in which when you became a believer for the very first time, when you confessed the faith in Yeshua the Messiah, and suddenly you went to all your friends and said, now I'm, I'm, I'm Christian, I've accepted the, the Lord. Was everything all great? Was everything all wonderful? Was, do all your friends look at you and suddenly are all, they're better friends with you? Are they all happy for you? No. You find yourself almost as a stranger amongst your brethren. They question you. They question your faith. Why do you believe in, in God in this way? How did you come into this faith? You're treated like a stranger. Even if it's some people that are, you're related to. Even when we're looking at the Abram going into these, these, uh, this kingdom, you know, we all came from Noah. We're all kind of a part of the same family. This is a number of years after that, but, but aren't we all, aren't we all brethren? But no, you're treated as a stranger in the land. Well, hey, where did you come from? It's all like what? Ha- it's all like you're not like everybody else. You're you're a little bit different. We get treated that way all the time, especially for any new believer in God or in the in uh, Yeshua the Messiah. And then it also happens. It's probably happened again in your life, even when maybe you've been a Christian walking in New Covenant faith, and then you come into a study and an understanding of Torah and all of these principles here, and you start keeping the commandments of God, and you believe in your heart, you're following after what God has called you to do, and then others around you look at you and say, like, well, what are you doing here? You start getting treated like a stranger, even from the people who were your New Covenant brethren. This has happened to a great number of people that this ministry has taught over the years. 
that it's not all wonderful when suddenly you develop, you discover a new truth about God, especially when you start reading the scripture from the beginning, from, and you start reading Torah and keeping the commandments and believing what God has said, your other brethren look to you and they start treating you like a stranger, like you, you're not like us anymore. We can look at our father Abram and Abraham that that's exactly what he had to deal with. Day in and day out. He was called by God. He did what God said, but suddenly there's trials, there's struggles, there's, there's things that you run into. And I believe that's a greater principle at work, that God is always trying to refine his people. He's trying to make the, his people are not ready to go back into the garden, are not ready to go into the kingdom, are not ready to go into paradise and dwell with God. There's a learning process that has to be done. This sin, this disobedience that we have toward God has to be rectified over time. And we have to constantly work at that. We have to answer the question, even through trial, even through struggle, will we continue to believe in God and follow after what God has said? Will we believe his promises? Abram did. He continued on through his life, even though he ran into, into struggles at the end of, uh, toward the end of uh, chapter 12. He then, there's a famine in the land. So we're going into the place where God calls Abram to go, and suddenly then there's no food. Okay, God, why did you call me into this land? This is where you told me to go. This is where you told me to be. And there's a famine. There's no food. So he has to go to Egypt. He has to go to Egypt. Now, in the story, that as he go down to Egypt, I'll just paraphrase or describe it quickly here he goes down into egypt when he comes up out of egypt he is has a great amount of wealth he is blessed when he comes out of egypt goes back into the land of canaan he has servants and he has flocks and it's that it's even more than even the the land can handle and this again is another pattern that abram starts and begins with him and continues on through his descendants after him that a famine is threatening to his life. If there's no food to eat, then your life is in, is in danger. And he had to go to Egypt to have his life preserved. This is the same pattern that we will see in the future with Joseph, that his brothers, one brother wanted to kill Joseph, but instead, it's like, no, he was sold and taken to Egypt. And so in the process of going to Egypt, his life was preserved. And then the, all the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, all, there was another famine in the land. They have to go to Egypt to have their lives preserved because there was another famine in the land. And it's also the same pattern that our Yeshua, the, that Yeshua the Messiah, our Messiah, had to deal with as well. When Herod, in the story of Matthew chapter 2, where Herod the king sought the life of him and all the, the young boys born at that time, and he had to go down to Egypt to have his life preserved. This is a pattern we will see that begins here with Abraham. Also, this thing where he traveled, I believe Abraham had to cross a river to come here. In fact, we believe Abraham, we call him the first Hebrew. And what Hebrew means is not from around here or from across the river, is if you go literally into the meaning of the term Hebrew. And so Abram comes into the land. I believe he had to cross the river Jordan to come into the land. He's coming from the east and enters into the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, for those wanting to know the geology, geography of it. And he had to, I believe he had to cross that river to begin this journey, to begin this going back to the land. This is the same pattern that when the children of Israel, after the wilderness, enter into the land, they too have to cross the river Jordan. You can read that in the first part of the book of uh, Joshua. And he had to lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River. 
than Yeshua. His ministry begins at the River Jordan. That he was there with John the Immerser, and that was the beginning, of almost the first story of the narrative of the beginning of the ministry of Yeshua. Again, all of these patterns all are fulfilled later through the descendants of Abraham. And I believe that we can always look for applications in our life, especially one, you can probably say this as a believer, that you had a renewing of your life the first time that you went through the mikvah, you went through the baptism. You can identify that with in the same way that, that Yeshua began his ministry there, that Abram began his journey by travel, going through the river. Joshua began his journey by going through the waters. The children of Israel went through the Red Sea. Going through the waters begins that great journey of life as a believer, as the person of God. Those, all those same patterns are all here in the story of Abram. Also want to talk about this here at chapter 13 here in the book of Genesis. Uh, let me go ahead and read here. Abram went up from Egypt and he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock. In silver and gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, and to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Very interesting thing there. Bethel means the house of God, and Ai, Ai sometimes means a heap of ruins or destruction. And so it's often, it's, if you look into the deeper meanings of these names, some, it, you see Abram going and walking between blessing and curse or destruction and the house of God that he's it, almost like he's constantly walking between those two things also making a choice whether he's going to continue to follow after God because not very far away if you don't follow God destruction and ruin is right before you if you make the wrong choice very interesting if you look down into those Hebrew meanings to the place of the altar which he made there first. Abram made an altar when he first came into the land, worshiping the Lord, also an aspect of establishing a covenant. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram and the livestock and the herdsmen of, of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites that dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and, and your herdsmen. For we are brethren. It is, not, it is not the whole land before you. Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if, you do, or if you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan. Lot journeyed east, separate, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look toward the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent, went to dwell at the oak trees of Mamre, 
which are in Hebron and built an altar there to the Lord. Very interesting here, we have this story and this narrative of how Lot separated from Abram. Again, there's more patterns and parallels to this, that the house of Israel, you can parallel this to the two kingdoms of Israel um, after King David, that the, that the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom became so great that there had to be a separation from them. And so we see this separation of Abram's house that is a pattern and a shadow to other things and other prophecies that are, that are going on. Also interesting here that Lot leaves Abram's house and then suddenly there's another blessing. There's another confirmation of the covenant. I find it interesting. It doesn't say this explicitly in the scripture. But I believe there is an aspect of Lot coming with Abram. If you go back to the very first verses of our portion, it said, Get out of your country from your family, from your father's house. That you go for yourself and go into the land of Canaan. Then immediately following that, it says he went there with his wife. That's great. And Lot, his brother's son. Wait a minute. Isn't he part of your father's house? Were you not supposed to go with Lot? In fact, what we see here immediately following that is that there's strife between him and Lot. That was that not actually what was supposed to happen? They they should have separated themselves earlier. So sometimes, even when we obey or following after what God has said, sometimes you might question how you go about doing it. Sometimes when the Lord has called you to do something, you go and do it, but then you also, you're like, well, this is probably okay as well. If I go go and do that, I'm I'm going to follow the Lord and I'm going to do this job, if you will. But I'm also going to have this one thing on the side that kind of, that maybe it's not exactly what God said, but I'm going to try and see if this works as well. That's when we try to mix our plan with God's plan. And when it's all said and done, when it looks at this, there, there was a separation that had to happen between Abram and Lot. Would it have been better that Lot never came with Abram to the land of Canaan? Possibly. In fact, if you look at it into the future, we'll know we'll have more stories of what happens to Lot. Lot will get captured. In fact, in in chapter 14, Lot will be captured by uh, another kingdom. Abram will have to go and get a bunch of uh, men and go and rescue his nephew, bring him back. And that then the, all the wicked kings are going to try to give a bunch of gifts to Abram, which he's going to refuse. And he's like, no, it's nothing but strife and problems happen with Lot. And then Lot is there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Lot is actually the reason why Abram negotiates for the, for the safety of Sodom and Gomorrah, to which that doesn't work as well. And then Lot is going to leave. With his wife's going to turn to a pillar of salt. Then he's going to form two kingdoms through his daughters that end up being villain, or, uh, yeah, villains, <laughs> enemies of the children of Israel for a great number of years. Everything that happened with the Lot... Though he's our cousin, though we, we, we love him, everything that happened with him always seemed to cause a problem, always seemed to be an issue. Would all of that have been solved if we explicitly followed the instruction, go for yourself into the land, get out of your father's house? Possibly. That is where the, where the story of, of Lot begins. And then after Lot finally separates, then we have this blessing to, to Abram. This is now the first time that we see this, where God tells Abram, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Wow. That is an incredible blessing. We've heard it. In fact, we tend to hear it more often that the uh, promise to Abraham was, we'll make his descendants to be as the stars of the sky. Well, the stars of the sky is a beautiful, amazing thing, but all you have to do on a night sky is look up and you can see definitive borders from horizon to horizon that, yeah, the stars, they're all there, they're contained there. 
And then you have the blessing that comes later where he'll make his descendants as the sand of the seashore. The seashore is great as well, but again, that's still a confined area. If you're completely inland, you can't see any of the sand of the, sand of the seashore. Again, this is still a great, amazing number and a great promise made to Abram. But this one right here, I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Wow. That's even, that's greater than the stars of, of the sky. That's greater than the sand of the seashore. That's as, that's as far wide as you could possibly go to know that the promise to Abraham that no man can number the number of people that will be blessed and come through the family of Abraham. What an amazing promise that is. What's also interesting here, verse 17, if you never noticed this, you should uh, take note of this. God calls him to arise, walk in the land. Through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Okay, so God's talking to Abram. He says, look, everything's here. That, that, that's all. Abram's like, amen, amen. That, that's great, Lord. Lord then says, arise and go walk it. What? That's a great, that, that's a huge piece of land. That's a, lot of, that, that's a lot to go, to go all the way as far as I can see, to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, for one person to go and walk the land that God has promised to him. That's an application we have to take. Sometimes God asks us to not all... He doesn't just tell us that He's going to bless us. Tell us that He's going to do it. He makes us go and see it. Makes us go and walk it out, if you will. Not only does He give us the, the commandments and the covenant and say, Here, I give you this covenant. Oh, thanks, it's a wonderful gift. He's like, no. You have to do it. You have to do the instructions that I'm showing you so that you receive those blessings. There's a uh, pattern within scripture and there's a verse that talks about how wherever you place your soul, that is the land that will be your possession. First of all, there's a lot of things within ancient custom that when you went and you occupied a land that because you put your foot there, you claimed ownership for it. That you almost had to, you couldn't own land if you had never actually walked in that place. Didn't work that way. You have to put your soul, put your foot in the place to then stake claim to land. So there's an ancient custom in there that obviously that had to be fulfilled. If God's going to give Abram this land, he has to walk there. He has to go there. He has to put his foot there before that ownership will take place. But in an application for us, we have to go and do those things and go and see to the blessing. When God says, I'm going to bless you, we still have to work for it sometimes. He gives us the means to acquire the wealth. Sometimes he doesn't just give it to us. And here through Abram, we have that pattern once again that we can learn and see how did he follow God? How did he listen to what did God actually say? When God calls, what is God calling us to do? Not only to, to he's saying he's going to bless us, but he was also asking us to walk it out daily in our lives. Let me skip ahead now to chapter 15. Let me talk about this passage here. This is a passage that many people are aware of and they're familiar with this. Um, if you haven't seen it before, uh, our brother Rico Cortez has a great teaching called The Covenant of the Pieces that talks about this covenant God made with Abram. Once again, we have covenant language and, and aspects of the formation of a covenant. There's several different ways that covenants are formed. Covenants are formed, there, sometimes there's uh, simple covenants that are formed, such as a contract, that you have terms of a deal between one man and, and, and another man, or say man and God, and you read the terms, and you say you agree to the terms, you sign on the dotted line and say, yes, we now we have an accord, we have a covenant. 
Now, it's a simple covenant that's simply based on a contract and a piece of paper. There's other things that can be done, ceremonies, if you will, that strengthen that covenant. If you form a contract with another man, but then it's done with a great meal involved with this. Hey, we're going to have a, now a celebration meal that we're going to sit and we're going to celebrate the creation of the accord we just had. That covenant is now a stronger covenant. It's stronger than just a signature on a piece of paper. It's now a meal has been served and you always will remember the joining of that covenant. These things happen constantly when we just look at a marriage and there's usually a great meal and there's a ceremony that goes with it to strengthen what that covenant represents and how strong that bond is between people. There's a meal that's served. There's an exchange of gifts or a sign that is given to affirm that covenant. In the case of a marriage, we have the exchange of a ring that is given between two people that it's a sign of that covenant. And in other aspects of in, in ancient formation of covenant, there would be a memorial that would be set up. There would be a stone pillar. You know, God calls for Abram. He builds altars to the Lord that strengthens the covenant between Abram and with God. That same sign will continue on all the way as our portion uh, concludes in chapter 17. This is when we have the covenant of circumcision. That not only have we had terms of what God has called Abram to do and he's agreed to it. Not only have we built altars to signify the covenant. We've also made sacrifice. That the, 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 uh, Some form of a cut is, a, is also uh, forms and is a ceremony that goes into the forming of a covenant that happens in chapter 15 but then a sign or a scar or something that is that is a permanent fixture that indicates that a covenant has been formed is also given to abram in chapter 17 you can see this in your life anytime that a covenant was made between you and with somebody else you can see that if there are certain ceremonies and aspects of the formation of that covenant, that covenant is now stronger. It's a stronger relationship between you and another person. If you ever had a friend and you got injured together, and you both had a scar to tell the story, man, you get together and you say, hey, remember that scar we had? That relationship, there's, a, there's an unbreakable bond in that relationship if you have that to share. If you remember an amazing meal or a feast that you had or Thanksgiving meals with your family that you remember all coming together, that's a reestablishment or a, a reaffirmation of the covenant of your family. And you remember those things and it strengthens that bond. That is what we have in the formation of the relationship between God and Abraham. Not only Abraham, but also his descendants after him. He gives them signs of that relationship. He gives us up through and through his descendants and through the Torah, we'll have appointed times, feast days for us to go and join with God, for us to reestablish that relationship that we have with God. That's why these things are here. That's why the commandments are here. That's why we have the appointed times. That's what all of this is. Some people might look and they'll be like, why did we have to make this sacrifice here in chapter 15? Why? What is this deal with circumcision in chapter 17? What is all of these things? Oh, I mean, it's like, are these ancient things that now don't, don't mean anything? No. These are aspects and ceremonies of an established relationship, relationship between God and the family of Abraham that establish that covenant relationship. That God is with this family. 
that we are a part of the people of God, that we believe in His promises. He gives us appointed times to meet Him and feast with Him. He gives us means through a sacrificial system to make sacrifices before Him, to reaffirm that covenant. He gives us signs and symbols of that covenant constantly. I, I, I joke with uh, some people sometimes, but there actually is some real uh, uh, symbolism to it, is that your belly button is a scar that's left from when you were born to your mother. That scar is a sign of the covenant of life that when you were created. When you were born, there was a cut that took place. And that covenant of life and that scar in the middle of your torso is a sign of the covenant of life. All of these things and aspects of our lives all show us how strong the relationship is between us and with our Heavenly Father. We learn these things through Abraham. We see these patterns in these pictures. We see When you're given a name, that's another establishment of the covenant. When God changes the name of Abram to Abraham and his wife Sarai to Sarah, that that is another aspect of covenant when a name is changed. All of these things all point to one thing, is that God has established his covenant in a relationship with this family that started with this man named Abraham. And that he has promised to that man Abraham through all of his descendants that we will all be grafted in into that family. And in that family we will be blessed. And anyone who comes against that family will be cursed. And anybody who stands with that family will be blessed. And that everyone, wherever they might be, can be grafted in into that family. We're going to give a means in which we can be a part of that family. Sit at that table. Join in those family feast days, if you will. And that when you're a part of that... You'll be blessed, you'll be grafted in, and we'll all be joined back in on a great journey back to the land, a land that was promised to that family. That is a family we want to be a part of. That's a family that we want to identify with. And that's what we need to do. We need to look at our father Abraham and identify with him and all the promises that was given to him. And take application to our own lives. We should establish good relationships with our brethren in the same way that we make a good covenant with another person. It has, uh, there's a contract, there, there's an understanding between us that you have peace within one another that you say, hey, I'm going to love you, I'm going to work with you this way, you're not going to hurt me this way in the same way that we have a marriage contract that says we, with, our, with our spouses that say we're going to do this, we're going to stay in covenant, we give the length of the, of the covenant until death do us part and that we establish all of our relationships in that way. In the, in the, if we learn that from one another, from one brother to another, with your family members, with your brethren, then with that example, we can then understand the relationship between us and with our Heavenly Father who created us. We believe in the things that we can see. We believe, we, we love our brother, so if we love our brother, that's a prerequisite, so then we can know how to love God, our Heavenly Father. This is all about a relationship between us and our Heavenly Father. That He wants us, He created us, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and He wants us to come back into the land, the peace, the paradise, the Garden of Eden, where He created us and wanted us to be. But through sin and through trials and tribulations and transgression of His covenant, we've been scattered away. But the whole point is to bring us back. Slowly but surely, through all of our, through the descendants of Abraham, we are coming back 
to the land, coming back in faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see these instructions. We must be a people in a generation who says, I will do those things. I will believe what God has said. I will follow what he has said because I want to have the promises and the blessing that God will give me, but I have to walk it out. I have to see it through. And I have to, every day, die unto myself, take up your cross, and walk daily with the commandments and the covenant that God has given and the relationship that he has, that God gave through Abraham, and also the covenant of Yeshua the Messiah, his death, his sacrifice, and his love for us. And we walk that relationship out on our way back to the kingdom, where we're all desiring to go to receive those blessings. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the life of Abraham. We thank you, Lord, for the stories. And we, Father, as we go through the Torah cycle this year, I pray that we would keep all of these things in mind, all of the signs and covenants and what you do with all of the descendants after him, through Isaac, through Jacob, through all the children of Israel, Father. Father, I pray that we take it to heart and take application to it, that we identify with that family that we would be grafted in into that family, that we would see that these words on this page, Father, are alive and powerful, and that they are for us. We are for us, the descendants of Abraham. Before we identify as the family, and we desire to be a part of that family, Lord, that you have established, where you were friends, where you walked with Abraham, Father. So, Father, we desire and we ask that you would walk with us daily. That you would lead us and guide us and give us those blessings, Lord, and that you would all that we would always keep our focus on that. That Father, we can't just receive the blessings; we have to walk them out. We have to do them daily, Father, for us to receive that blessing. So, we Father, I thank you for everything that you do. We thank you for the signs of your covenant and your relationship, Father. And I pray that every time that we go to and fro, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our relationships, strengthen our families, Father. Cause us to uh, love the brethren, Father. For if we do not love our neighbor and love our brethren and love even our enemies, Father, then we will not know you. So, Father, I pray that you would always encourage us and strengthen us. And know even though we're strangers in the land, Father, Lord, I pray that you would just con- that we would stay faithful to you through trial and through tribulation. And that even though Abraham had to wait a number of years before you confirmed that covenant, Father, I pray that you give us the patience to wait until you've confirmed that covenant with us and that we will be faithful in those promises, Father, and that at the end you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So we love you and bless you and thank you on this Sabbath day. It's in your Son, Yeshua, we pray. Amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayelam nata betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai non ten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles now to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. Uh, our Torah portion this week is primarily about Abraham, Abraham being called by the Lord to go to a place that he had not seen before, the promised land, and the covenant that God established with Abraham. 
God, who was the creator of the world, uh, and now wants to build a relationship with a particular man and will follow his family, which will lead to a nation, which will lead to the world. So what he's going to establish in this relationship with this man, Abraham, is going to have profound implications on the entire world. Namely, the statement uh, that uh, is, is said of Abraham, in your seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. So what God started with Abraham carries through to the rest of us all the way through. Now, um, the reason why I've, I've chosen uh, Romans chapter 4 is because in verse 1 it says, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? Paul is now in this book of Romans. He's going to take the subject of, that we just learned in the Torah portion about Abraham, and he's going to correlate what did we learn about God's relationship with Abraham that has bearing on us specifically with regard to the faith in the Messiah and our salvation. So the subject is going to be about justification. Now, let me just remind you of a couple of things here about Paul. Paul was a Torah scholar. Of all of the apostles, Paul probably understood the Torah and had been teaching and part of the Torah for a considerable greater time than any of the other disciples and apostles. He knows what the Torah teaches, and so he's coming from this basis of knowledge, knowing what is in the Torah portion about Abraham to explain certain key things to us about the faith. Let me also tell you that in the first three chapters of Romans, that he is explaining, quite simply, what is sin. How is it that we have a problem with God between us, and what is it that needs to be repaired? What is it that needs to be restored? And why do we need redemption? And so he's laying out this incredible, by the way, deep theological discussion. This is the book of major doctrine to the church. And in fact, um, uh, in a lot of churches that I've been involved with, very few people can wade through this book. Uh, because it is heavy with principle, truth, and doctrine. And a lot of people don't want to learn those kinds of things. They just want to love, and let's forgive, and let's be kind, and isn't, isn't the Lord great, and let's sing about it. Uh, but rather than sit down and really think this through as to what in the world is God doing with us, and how does the Messiah work into it, how does faith work, and oh, by the way, how does the law fit into all of this? And so these are the questions that he's uh, addressing, and this is the way he's going to do it. Now, given that we just had the Torah portion about Abraham, what we're going to discover is he's going to repeat to you what we just learned in the Torah portion, but put a little bit different slant. This is Paul's going to teach you lek lekha, and he's going to point out certain key principles that we glean from that portion from the law. So let me read to you. Uh, now, as we begin, uh, beginning at verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. 
Now to the one who who works, his wage is reckoned, not reckoned as favor, but as what is due. Let's stop right there and let's make sure we understand what just Paul just said. He says, first of all, uh, faith is something about believing the promises of God. Faith is not what is your religious practice. Faith is not what sort of rituals that you go through, what name of church you go through. That's not your faith. It's not religiosity. It is, you have heard God say something to you, you believe what God has promised to you, and you, you trust and believe in God. That's faith. And that's the faith that is counted as righteousness. Righteousness meaning that's doing the right thing. Okay? As opposed to self-righteousness, which is something that you decide is the right thing to do, and you go ahead and do it. Rather, you're doing it the way God said, therefore it's righteousness. The Lord we serve is a righteous God, and his judgments and decisions are right. And so we trust him, we believe in him, therefore we have the righteousness of God, not our own righteousness. Now, why in the world is Paul writing this book? What was he contending with and dealing with, and why is he making these arguments? Paul is in Rome at this time. Why is he in Rome? Well, way back uh, in the book of Acts, we read all about how he came back into Jerusalem. He got arrested, and he appealed his case to, because he was a Roman citizen, he appealed his case all the way to Caesar. And so he went to Rome to have his trial before Caesar. Now, the way arrests and things like that were done in those days, he just stayed in the house and waited for the time when he was going to have the meeting with Caesar and, and they were going to d- decide uh, the, the issues that he had come before. While he's in Rome, <coughs> and we believe that he was there for a couple of years, he's meeting locally with new believers. Some of those people he's meeting with are Jews. His fellow Jews that live in Rome... Many of them are of the Pharisaic tradition. And so he's in discussions with them, not only introducing to them who Yeshua of Nazareth is and what he came and did, but he's also addressing how did what he did fit into what we've already learned from the Torah and how does that fit within our beliefs about the God of Israel. And so he's addressing the issue of Faith here as justification, not the works of the law. Now, the Pharisaic tradition, and by the way, that spun into the rabbinical tradition of Judaism today. What is the central tenet of Judaism? What was it that the Pharisees would teach when it came to the subject, how is a person saved? How does a person know he's going to be in the future kingdom with God? as opposed to being at being judged by God. And by the way, the Bible is full of ex- expressly explaining that if you disobey the Lord, you are going to be judged. Expressly is saying that. Um, and on the other hand, Moses is saying, keep the commandments of the Lord and you'll be blessed. So he's in the midst of this discussion. So who's the audience and what do they believe that he's speaking to? Right off the bat, he's speaking to people who think you have to be circumcised and you have to keep the law to be saved. 
That's what they believe. That's what Pharisees believe. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 15, the conference at Jerusalem, the reason why they had the conference is because we had some new um, Pharisaic believers in the faith, and they were going around telling Gentiles, well, you've got to do the same thing as us. You've got to be circumcised to be saved. You've got to keep the law to be saved. And as you know, in Acts chapter 15, Paul takes issue with that. Peter takes issue with that. James renders a judgment, says that's not correct. All of the apostles made the decision, no, that's not correct. You don't keep the law to be saved. So here he is, he's discussing with these Roman Pharisaic Jews, and he's going to make an even more powerful argument with regard to that. Now, let me, um, that's who he's talking to historically, but here we are today, and we are, uh, we have uh, Christians, you know, and, and all of us have the Christian experience, or at least most of us, uh, coming out of the church. And oh, by the way, what does the church teach? Church, the church um, takes issue with what Judaism teaches, salvation by works. No, no, no. It's all by faith. But in the course of doing it, they throw the law out that the, 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 the rabbis and the Pharisees were quoting from. Now, let me go ahead and just say this right off the bat. Some of you listening to this broadcast are going to say, now, Monty, there you go again. There you are chastising the Christians. I came from a church, and we never taught that. The heck it's not taught. It is taught. It's the way they teach the book of Romans. I'm going to show you. This is the dominant teaching of the Christian church, that faith is something separate from the law. And therefore, because faith is where we get our salvation, we get to dismiss the law. That is absolutely, utterly false. And I would remind you very carefully that the Messiah himself has said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will be entering the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, many will argue we've done many spiritual works in your name, many good deeds in your name. We've done miracles in your name. We've cast out demons in your name. And he says, even from that group, I will say to him, I never knew you because you're lawless. You're full of iniquity. You're violating, transgressing the commandments of the Lord to the, such an extent you have no faith. Faith was came to us by Abraham. Now, before we ever go any further, in Lech Lecha, where we're reading in Genesis, is Genesis part of the law? Yes, it is. So what taught faith to us? The Torah. The Torah is the record for us, so we can learn about faith, so that it will lead to salvation. Now, in the portion that Ephraim uh, got through teaching with us, I'm going to give you a super-summarized teaching of Lech Lecha, and actually what we learned from Abraham in total. And if you have a note paper and a pen, you might want to write this down because you're going to want to remember this statement. Yes, faith is counted as righteousness, and righteousness has kissed justice. And justice has demanded payment or sacrifice. And with sacrifice, you then receive salvation. At no time did I mention the law in there or any commandment, did I? The subject that is taught by Abraham and that the law teaches, 
that it starts with faith, believing the promises of God, it ends with salvation. So when Paul said, for example, in Ephesians, for by grace are you saved through faith, he's giving you the summarized teaching of what is taught by Abraham in the law. Now, I want you to take note of this. This teaching is given first before any commandments are given to us. Why? Because the law teaches that you must originate from the heart, from what you believe, is the basis to obey. Now, Paul does a very good job here of explaining the origination of all sin comes from the heart. And in fact, in the previous chapter, he said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because we all have from the heart sinned. Even if you lived a legal life, you didn't kill anybody, you didn't steal from anybody, you didn't lie to anybody. And so you're still a sinner because sin originates from the heart and everyone has fallen short of the, of the glory of God. Well, just as the law teaches that you obey from the heart, that you disobey from the heart, so Paul comes teaching us, and this is exactly what Yeshua came teaching. He was teaching exactly the same principles that were taught by Moses and that are given to us in the law. And it first begins, for us to understand, with God's relationship with Abraham. That's the reason why when we become believers in the Messiah, we are of the seed of Abraham. And Paul expressly says that descendancy from Abraham is leading us to the Messiah. It was always God's plan that he would provide the Redeemer as a further explanation of what God was establishing in his relationship with Abraham. Now, the difference between those that have lived before and those that have lived after is before the saints would believe that God would provide a Redeemer, and we believe God has provided a Redeemer. Same faith, same promise, same grace, same salvation. There's no distinction and no difference. But this is where the rub comes in. People think there is a difference. They think faith in Messiah is completely separate from the law. It is not. Faith actually is, are you ready for this, the foundation of the law. God started this with Abraham to set the stage so Moses could come and give us the law. Don't believe me on that, right? Okay, let me take you to chapter 3, verse 31, where Paul says, Do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. If you're claiming that you believe in the Messiah by faith, and therefore you receive the grace of God and the gift of eternal life, that statement alone, you just established the righteousness of the law. But you know, that's not what I was taught when I was growing up in the faith. And I will be honest with you, I've never seen a single church in my entire lifetime ever teach it. In fact, in preparation for this week for me to come and teach, as is my habit, I was scanning through the TV channels. I'm a guy, so I have to hold the remote in my hand all the time. And I was going through a series of Christian stations and looking at various teachers and what they were teaching. Three times this week, three times this week in preparation for here, I heard men stand up, preachers. Christians, stand up and speak to the faith of Messiah and the nullification of the law. 
So at your particular church where you're at and say, well, I've never heard my preacher ever. We don't teach that and so forth. Go ask your pastor. Go ask him the question. You know, does faith in the Messiah essentially nullify any part of the law? And you know what his answer is going to be? Yes, it does. And that is utterly false. Now, Paul is going to be arguing against the Pharisees because they've overstated what the law says. So let's keep it in context, the argument he's making to them, and then let's keep in context the argument that we have today. So continuing on, how does Paul address the issue of the Pharisaic tradition, the rabbinical tradition, of overstating the purpose of the law and failing to teach what we learned from Abraham about faith? Because they're not following the law if they ignore Abraham. So here's what he says. Um, when it, let me repeat what verse 5 says. But to the one who does not work, but believes in, excuse me, let me, let me go back to this. Um, let me reread re the passage. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, but as what is due. Let me repeat what that means. If I hire you, and I ask you to accomplish a certain task, I, I order you to do something. When you have completed it, I owe you for what you did. I'm not granting you my favor. I'm not being gracious to you. You're going to pay me for what we agreed that that was worth. You know, how many of you would like to go to work, you know, put 40 hours in, and um, the boss says, no, no, I don't have a paycheck for you. I just want to give you my personal favor. I like you a lot. Would you accept that? No, because that's not what work is. Work, you get something due that goes with it. So if your salvation is based on works, then you're only going to get what's due. What does the law teach is the benefit that you get from obeying the Lord? Salvation? No. What the law teaches is if you obey, you get the blessings. You get all the accoutrements of life and, and peace and other things like that, but not salvation. That's a completely different issue. If you disobey the Lord, you get curses. By the way, who taught us that? Who's the first one? Abraham. Abraham was tested. And in next week's portion, you'll see it. He was told to take Isaac, his son, and go up and give him back to the Lord. The promise that God had given to him of having a son, he, the Lord says, okay, I want you to give him back. Rather than argue with the Lord or fight the Lord or say, well, that's not according to the plan, he obeyed what the Lord said, even though it didn't make any sense. But he obeyed, and he was stopped before he had slain Isaac. And guess what God says to him? Now I see that you obey my voice, therefore will I bless you. Obedience produces blessings. 
it doesn't produce salvation. The do of keeping the commandments and the law is not salvation. Remember the Pharisees teach, keeping the works of the law is how you get saved. That's false. The Torah doesn't teach that. That is the teaching of men. Now, we Christians, we've heard this teaching before. Oh, yeah, we reject that. We heard Paul say that. We've heard. But did that make the law then go away? Did that make the law of none effect? No, we haven't taught what the law does yet. We just said what the law doesn't do. The law doesn't save you. So what does the law do for us? Well, that's why you would want to continue to read after Abraham and find out when the law was given, what was its purpose? But let's be clear about this. The law was never given as a methodology for anybody to get saved. That was all clearly explained in the Torah when we learned about Abraham and his relationship with God. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. And just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man whom God reckons righteous apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sins the Lord will not take into account. You see, this salvation thing, this forgiveness of sin, comes from faith, not by the measure of the law. If you follow the measure of the law, you die if you sin. You obey, you get good. You get blessings. And the curses lead to death. That's our problem. We're not, we don't want to die. We want to find some way to get past this because we're all sinners. We all transgress the law, and it all leads to death. How are we going to live? Well, obviously, it's got to be something apart from the law. It's got to be the grace from God. It's got to be God himself. And the law, for example, demands there has to be a payment. So what did Yeshua come and do? Well, according to the law, he came as the Lamb of God, a sacrifice provided by God that is the payment that the law demands for sin. And therefore, because we know he has made that payment, we know we have forgiveness. According to the law. So it seems the law is an important component to define sin, to define when we receive salvation, to have a marker, a measure, so we understand what God has done for us. If you never understood the law to begin with, I seriously doubt you understand really what sin is other than it makes you feel bad. And oh, by the way, even the Gentiles, apart from those who have ever heard the law, even they have that much law in them. Even Gentiles who have never heard of the Torah before, they can go and do something wrong. And even they feel they've done something wrong. Even they can recognize what it is. But they don't know what to do about it. Or how, before a holy God, do we resolve this and be reconciled to it? That's the reason why we have the story of redemption. That's the reason why we have to teach the law, so we can figure out who the Messiah is. So when he comes and does the work of redemption, we understand how it works, and we understand the basis of how God will render his judgment and his decision, and we can have confidence in him with regard to that judgment and believe that he really has given us the gift of eternal life and believe his promise to give us the gift of eternal life.
All of which leads to salvation. It's faith, believing in the promises of God. Now he goes on to say even further here, he talks about how David calls out from the scripture, blessed is the one who receives forgiveness. In this blessing, verse 9, then, then upon the uncircumcised or upon the uncircumcised, is it upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. And he goes on to say here, how then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised. Abraham got this promise and his faith was counted as righteousness before circumcision. The statement about him was in, in, in Genesis 15. You don't get to circumcision until Genesis 17. Now, why did he make that statement? Because the Jews and the rabbis and the Pharisaic tradition was, you have to be circumcised to be saved. Again, a distortion of what that is all about, and not the proper teaching of it. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Basically what he's saying is, the reason why God did it this way, he wanted, God wanted to make sure that the agreement that God made with Abraham concerning his faith to be counted for righteousness, to go toward salvation, that would lead to salvation, he wanted to make sure that it would apply to all people of the world, meaning the uncircumcised can receive this. All peoples, all nations, um, that truly in his seed would all the families of the earth be blessed. God purposely did this in this way. Now, how many of you, have ever heard a Christian guy stand up and say, hey, our faith in the Messiah is based on the agreement that God made with Abraham. But that's what the law teaches. And that's what Paul is teaching. Paul is teaching. If you didn't have that, if you didn't have what God had done with Abraham, you would not have understood, you would not have gotten it as to what the Messiah has done. You would end up with a distorted point of view as to what the Messiah did. It would foul you up. By the way, my Jewish brethren who hold to the Pharisaic tradition, they're fouled up. Oh, by the way, my church father brethren, my Christian brethren, because you don't understand these principles, I have bad news for you. You're fouled up too. You better start getting the idea that your particular religious practice, the particular church you go to, the particular dogma that you offer, the particular rituals that you use in your religious expression, is in no wise your salvation. And by the way, God sees through giving lip service to him when he knows really what's in your heart and what you believe in. You either believe in the promises of God and you drop all that other stuff that you've got, or he looks at you and he goes... I never knew you. Depart from me, ye who are lawless. You have no instruction in what this is about. He goes on to say, verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those who not only of the circumcision, but also to follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. 
for the promises to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Is there any question whatsoever about that? The story of Abraham was before Moses brought us the law. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and promise is nullified. He's saying if you're going to hold to the law, you just discounted everything God did with Abraham. Your belief system just begins at Moses. The Torah doesn't begin at Moses. The Torah begins way back in the book of Genesis with telling us where our fathers come from. And the predominant subject in the book of Genesis, the book of beginning, is about our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the relationship that God built with those men to our benefit. Verse 16. Um, Excuse me, verse 15. Um, For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Basically what it's saying is if there's not a law that has a written thing on it, then you're not violating anything. But if there is a law, it clearly shows violation. Why was the law given? So that we would understand sin and transgression and we could understand why we have to have a Savior. And what he's doing for us when he does it. Verse 16, for this reason it is by faith that it might be accordance with grace in order that the promise may be certain to all of the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of, of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The nonsense that is taught by uh, Judaism, that the Gentiles, the non-Jew, they only have to keep the Noachide laws, they don't have to keep the Torah. Not only is it defiant against what the Torah teaches, it doesn't make any sense. They're nullifying what God has established through our father Abraham. Abraham was set up after Noah specifically to include the whole world. Why stop the Noahide things and say, oh, well, you don't get to be part of Abraham. And that's what you're teaching if you teach Noahide laws. You're saying Abraham and God's relationship with him has no bearing on us. That is not correct. That is not what God said with Abraham. That's not what's taught right here whatsoever. Again, let me step back for my Christian friends. Do you see the powerful statement that you've been included? You are included as a result of what God did with Abraham Not because you started reading Matthew 1 and heard about the story of the Messiah. You were included from the very beginning by what God started with Abraham. You were looking for the redemption. You were looking for the payment for the sin. That's the reason why we teach Messiah Yeshua. Here's the payment. Here's the promise revealed. This is what God promised us, and here it is. We believe in the promise. Where did we get the idea that we should believe in the promises of God? It comes from Abraham. And to say that, well, we start at this point not from there, is a person who does not understand what Abraham taught us, and is not a person who understands what Paul was talking about in this book. He goes on further to say, um, Verse 17. No, excuse me. I'm at verse 16. 
Let's go to verse 17. For as it is written, the father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. There's the first statement that says what God was doing with Abraham has to do with eternal life. And that's what we're all interested in, right? Salvation, eternal life. It all started with the relationship God established with Abraham so that we would understand what would follow. In hope, against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which has been spoken, so shall your descendants be. You do know that when he said that to him, he didn't have any children. He had zero children. And by the way, he was past the age of fathering children, so was his wife. You talk about hope against hope. That's how powerful his faith was and his belief in what God had said. And becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years of age, and deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to also perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. I believe this is the right thing because I'm believing in what God said and what God will do. And I believe he's able to do what he says. Not me, what he's able to do. That's where his faith is at. Not now in his sake only was it written, but it was also reckoned to him. But as for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Yeshua our Lord from the dead... He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. You want to understand why did the Messiah come and make the sacrifice he made? You have to first understand what has God been doing with Abraham and his descendants from the very beginning. And like Abraham who believed when there was, like, no way to believe it, but he did. You and I are believing that we're going to die in this mortal body, and God's going to raise you up from the grave, and he's gonna, you're going to live again. Hope against hope. It's completely beyond our reach. There's no way we can affect it. We have to trust and believe God. And when he says he'll forgive us of our sins, we can trust and believe him for that. And they'll not receive the ultimate punishment, but rather receive his grace and his forgiveness. We believe that, too, because he's promised those things to us. The first verse of chapter 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace through God, through the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. That's essentially what he's trying to teach here. What he's really teaching is what's going on with Abraham. He's teaching what Abraham has taught us. So Abraham is extremely important to us in our faith. Amen? So let's pray. Father, thank you for the teaching of Abraham in our Torah portion, and thank you, Lord, for this teaching from Paul in the book of Romans. And we thank you for it in Yeshua's name. Amen.
And now we leave you with the Iranic blessing. bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing. Shalom. 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 Put a smile upon your face He's got the whole world in his hands Obey his commands And you will know peace Shalom
Shalom.